Well, let's see if I can do this podcast by myself. All right, sound effects work. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore and it's good to be with you again this week. Uh, Friends, I apologize in advance. I'm flying solo today. I've made notes. We're going to wing it. We're going to see how this goes. Um, Because, my gosh, what a week in Oklahoma politics and government. I am moderately under the weather, minorly. I don't even know. I've got uh, tree allergies, like I think most of you do too. Uh, And uh, I've traveled the last two weeks. I'm not even sure what day it is. And the news just keeps coming. Um, earlier this week, I uh, had the opportunity to go to the White House. The White House. That's right, the one in Washington where the president lives and works. And, I mean, technically, we were in the Eisenhower Professional Office Building, which is just next door to the White House. But there's a lot of White House offices in there. It's kind of a complex, you know, like... It's like a a bunch of buildings all clumped together with people everywhere and very nondescript signs on doors that say things like National Security Council. And you're just walking by thinking, holy crap. And they have like little boxes outside where you can lock up your cell phones because you're not allowed to take them in. That seems cool. I may install one of those outside of our office here just to make us feel (laughs) like we're talking about something that's a state secret. But in all seriousness, this was part of the White House's Communities in Action Um, series they've been doing with a number of states. Um, This week was Oklahoma, Kansas, and Missouri. They invited um, community leaders from each of those states to come for a a relatively brief meeting, just a few hours, where we heard from some officials um, within the executive branch and the administration, and then they heard from us. They got to hear the things that are working and the things that aren't, um, which was a unique opportunity, right? Like this is not something you get to do every day. As I told my wife, uh, listen, I don't care who the president is, but if the White House invites you to come because they want to hear from you, probably should go. Uh, there were a number of state legislators, um, uh, Mayor Bynum, uh, a bunch of other leaders, some labor, uh, uh, you know, OEA, uh, farmers and ranchers, some groups like that. Um, from Oklahoma and other states were similar, right? You had some community uh, organization leaders, you had elected officials, um, it was a really interesting cross-section, and to hear what's working and what's not in, in our neighboring states was also helpful. Uh, we didn't have as much time to you know, network with them as I would like. I was in town for less than 24 hours, but uh, it was a good opportunity. For my piece, I listened a lot, um, uh, took a few notes, and, uh, and raised my hand to speak, because again, I will probably never have this opportunity again. Um, and I mentioned... Uh, an executive order that President Biden issued in 2021, which feels like forever ago, um, that was certainly in the wake of the 2020 election that dealt with voting in America. Specifically, this executive order instructed the GSA, the, the Government Services Administration, to modernize their websites. And in fact, GSA uh, administrator was there. She was one of the speakers, uh, Robin Carnahan. And uh, she didn't address this specifically, and I didn't think to ask about it when she was there. Uh, but the the executive order instructed the GSA to modernize their websites, and she did mention that. Uh, and ex, uh, in particular, Vote.gov, which is like the national hub for voting information from the federal government, and also to take a bunch of steps to like ensure that federal employees have the information they need and the time they need and like are encouraged to participate in civics. Now, I'm sure like many of you, I kind of wish that election day was a federal holiday. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, But for our state, right, the federal government is the largest employer in the state of Oklahoma. And so to ensure that all federal employees have the information and the time they need to vote is an enormous deal for elections here in our state. And I said, hey, we've got the lowest voter participation in the country. This means a lot. Thank you for doing it. And also, um, the administration, both in that executive order and even more recently, has made comments in support of 
um, the need to protect elections workers. And that is something that I deal with on the national level across the country. Um, it's, it is arguably not as bad in Oklahoma as it is in some other states, but this is still an issue, whether you're a, an elections official, um, like for a county or the state election board, or you're just a volunteer poll worker who's helping out with elections. Um, we need, we should want, and we need those people to feel safe and secure in doing their work. Right? If the if the safety of our elections officials is compromised, then the safety of our elections are compromised. So I thought that meant a lot. So that was my piece. Um, it was quite an experience. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was really hot in that room. There's no food or drink. My mother-in-law asked, what did they feed you? I was like, nothing. They didn't. There was no none of that. A few folks had a bottle of water. I don't know how they swung that. Um, I was parched. And uh, on you know, in a somewhat humorous, positive note, we were there during the uh, the great cell phone outage of 2024. So my phone didn't work for like two hours. And that meant that I could only pay attention to what was being said and to be contemplative about uh, what was happening. So that was an unexpected and presumably a beneficial surprise. Um, although, you know, after about two hours, I was getting a bit nervous that something was going on in the world around us. And if you're afraid that there's some kind of like cybersecurity attack on the U.S., and you don't know what else might be coming, I'll tell you what, being you know next door to the White House is not the ideal place for your anxiety. Um, a couple of the speakers, two or three of the speakers that were there, um, mentioned something that I thought was very important. Um, one, they since Kansas was there as well, they mentioned the gun violence, the shootings that happened in Kansas City um, following the Super Bowl parade um, after the Chiefs won. That was important. And for us here in Oklahoma, um, they mentioned the recent death um, uh, in Owasso uh, of Nex Benedict, which I know, um, um, I assume all of you are aware of, and the the tragedy that we that we're honestly still learning about. Uh, we don't have all the details. You know, the autopsy report is still pending. I know there's a lot of unanswered questions, and there's just a lot of grief. Um, this, it, it hits everybody differently, right? And for me, um, the, my first thought, aside from just like, oh my gosh, um, and, and grieving for Nexus family and, um, for the, and honestly for the kind of broader LGBTQ, you know, two IA plus community, particularly, Young folks, those who are non-binary, have a number of friends and relatives who have youth uh, or children that uh, that identifies being non-binary and who are undoubtedly like more personally affected by this. And, and you know, we've seen the calls to the crisis hotline like spike like three hundred percent since the announcement of uh, of this young person's death. Um, it reminded me of a day when I was in eighth grade when I got a call um, from a friend that night that, and this is back, you know, obviously way before the internet when we just were all on the phone all evening with your friends, right? You had call waiting and you were just calling each other back and forth and sitting on the phone for hours, which is talking on the phone, which is bananas in today's world. But nevertheless, I got a phone call from a friend from school, but it was a guy that we didn't really talk on the phone much, but he said, Hey, did you hear about this other classmate? And I said, no, like I haven't thought about him. Cause I mean, we see him in school and he said, well, he uh, died like that. He had died by suicide. And I remember sitting at my desk in my bedroom thinking, what? Like what? And then the next day we went to class and I was sitting in math class which I had with this student, uh, young man that had died and he was, um, we, I mean, I think we all knew exactly what had happened. Um, and I, I don't know that this is the case with, with Nex, right? We don't, we just don't know all the details yet. We know that Nex was brutally beaten in school by classmates and that a few days later they died and we don't know from what, how, all this stuff, right? This hopefully we'll find out in the coming days and weeks. But um, for this, for my experience in eighth grade, 
Um, this individual was uh, very tall for his age. He was, I don't know, six foot six, something in eighth grade, right? Which is much taller than other, than other students. He definitely stood out in the hallway in, I would think by, you know, the common parlance of the time, like he was a big nerd, like he was big and he was a nerd. He was in all the, uh, honors classes. He was very smart. He's very quiet. Um, he was somewhat, um, uh, just kind of stood out in a crowd and most of us didn't know him well, but we had undoubtedly seen him be bullied in school. I can think of times in the locker room, right? Where other guys would pick on him just for his physical size, which was something he did not choose, could not control. Right. Um, and I'm certain that some of these guys that were smaller were probably jealous on some level, right? That this guy was so much bigger than they were because we're in eighth grade, like size matters. Um, but the fact that, and I, I think there had been some note or some, um, stuff expressed that basically he took his own life, um, because of, because of the bullying. Right. And I think about that pretty often, to be honest. Um, I can, I can still picture our math teacher just weeping. We sat there for an hour and she just sat at her desk. She stood up at like the overhead projector and said, I'm really sorry. And just sat down. And we just sat there for an hour. Some of us cried. Some of us, you know, just like our eyes were bugging out of our head. Hearts pounding. Um, because what do you do? Right? And that was in, you know, 1994 or something. Um, it well, Honestly, it was not that distant from when um, Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain had taken his life. Or had you know, died from overdose, but... No, no, he, I think he, I think there was a firearm involved with, with Kurt actually. Um, but it was just like such a gut punch then. And, um, so to hear the news this week about this happening in Oklahoma was another kind of gut punch. And so I'm, I'm rambling. This is certainly not about me or about a story that happened 30 years ago, but for you listeners, for your friends, your relatives, your children, or the children thereof. Um, I hope we can grieve together. I hope we as a state can find ways to grieve together, to take stock of where we're at as a state, um, to take stock of the, the language, the conversations we have, the things that our elected leaders say with their big bully pulpits and their big bully mouths that lead to a, to a society where this kind of behavior, um, the bullying, the violence, uh, the exclusion is acceptable and even celebrated. I hope all that stuff gets shoved down the goddamn toilet and flushed. And I hope that we build a better world. It's not okay. And for every, you know, adolescent out there who is in crisis every adult who worries about their kids for all of us who remember the horror of being in middle school and how hard it is, even for those of us that are cisgendered white males that were born with every privilege that we didn't ask for. Think about how much harder it is for everybody else, right? And do everything we can to make the world just a little bit better. Okay. I, pardon me. I'm wearing a jacket and now I'm really hot. Um, <laughs> as my, as my eyes well up with tears about this yet again this week, I'm going to make a very awkward pivot now to talk about a bill <laughs> in our state legislature that would ban sex ed. Um, and not ban it. It's a bit of an overstatement the bill would make it um, not required. It would allow parents to opt in, which is different right now. It's opt out, right? And I think for a lot of us, this is how it's, it is now how it has been since I was in middle school or elementary school, right? That that's part of the curriculum. You got to take a health class. You got to learn everything from about how your, you know, taste buds work to how your genitals work and about how <laughs> development is different for all of us. Those are, these are important scientific details 
developmental details that are, gosh, very important when you're in school uh, and certainly as an adult. And I remember like you had to send a permission slip home. And if your parents, they could come on one night, they could listen to a presentation, hear about the materials, which my parents did. And if they didn't like it, they could opt out. And there's a few kids whose parents opted them out. And that was fine, right? That's their choice. But the default is like, hey, everyone should learn this. Um, and if you don't feel comfortable, let us know. This would this bill would flip it around. Uh, this is House Bill 3120 by Representative Danny Williams from Seminole. And um, there's some like details about it that are like weird, <laughs> I think is the technical term. Um, you know, the bill would allow people to ignore preferred pronouns and some of that stuff, which is this language in this bill is certainly reactive to um, what is a much more prominent movement now than it was when we were kids. Um, and the idea is like, oh, well, parents could still do it. But particularly in Oklahoma, this is has the opportunity to be very negatively impactful because we are a top 10 state for HIV transmission and for a number of other sexually transmitted infections. And to be fair, during the debate about this bill in committee, the author didn't know what the term STI, the acronym, Sexually Transmitted Infections, stood for. Someone else had to inform him. And if that's the situation that you're running this bill and you don't know the proper terminology, it calls into question your um, expertise in this matter. Um, th- the other thing about this is that and I think the author said that he um, was not, like he didn't get this uh, information. And when he was in school, he's like, well, we didn't have it. And it's not a big deal if kids don't get it now, but it's up to parents. And we would just say, like, yes, it is up to parents. But, you know, if their parents aren't actively involved in the school for whatever reason, they might miss the opportunity to learn this information. And more importantly, um, this information is not just like, okay, it's just not like a woke mob thing. Like, that's not a thing. This is science. This is medical science. How many of these kids might want to go on and become a doctor someday, but they didn't get a critical building block when they are in sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade? And uh, when I used to work in public health, right, I did, I spoke, I did classes, lectures around the state to healthcare providers about sexually transmitted diseases, especially HIV and the intersection of all this stuff, right? Mental health and HIV, adolescence and HIV was one of the presentations that I gave frequently. And I can remember being at a rural hospital in Oklahoma talking about adolescence and HIV and that I was sharing a story that our health educator had been doing some classes with some high schoolers and, you know, she let the students submit questions in advance. And one of the questions she got one day said, you know, if like, is it true that if you douche with Mountain Dew after sex, it will kill the sperm and you can't get pregnant, which like we read that question and it was you know admittedly like a little funny right because it just sounds really sticky to be honest and I'm, I've probably shared this anecdote on the show before but when I shared it to this audience a member of the audience who was a, uh, a nurse or a physician I don't remember his actual title but everyone kind of laughed which I expected because it was kind of a joke and he said he's like you know when I was in high school in the 60s it was the same thing we all kept a six pack of Dr. Pepper in the trunk of the car for this reason which begs the question, like, first of all, you having sex in your car, and then what, you offer your date a Dr. Pepper to pour on her hoo-ha to try to prevent pregnancy? This is gross and doesn't work. This is, not un- this is unclean and unsanitary and not based in science, right? This is the, the same stuff you would pour on your car battery to erode some of the, like, buildup there to, like, help your car start. You're going to pour it on your loved one's genitals? Okay, this is just weird and not true. And so everyone kind of laughed at the story. And I said, well, that's funny you bring that up. And I said, because I said, when was that? And he said, well, it's like 30 years ago. I said, well, in 30 years, the only thing that's been changed in the story is the type of soda, right? It was Dr. Pepper for you and it's Mountain Dew now. But the point is that students today have not yet learned that this is not an effective way to prevent pregnancy. And like you could see his kind of stunned eyes and everyone else got quiet real quick. And I said, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm doing this presentation for you as medical professionals is to ensure that you know that youth in your communities 
have not learned these lessons yet, and that is why we are still a top 10 state for sexually transmitted infections, right? So we have to, we must allow our students the opportunity to learn this stuff in school in the same way that they learn math and verbs and geography. Like this is all stuff that people need to live in today's world. I'm okay. I'm on, I'm on a, I'm already piped up now. Like my energy's going guys. This is so far, this, uh, solo episodes going. Okay. 20 minutes in. Holy Moses. Well, I'm not going to get through all of this. All right. So that bill's out there. It went through committee. It goes to the floor next. We'll see what happens. But if you want to advocate for it, please, you know, call your state, uh, state house representative. Um, uh, if you live in Edmond, you have a new house state representative. Most of Edmond, if you live in HD 39, formerly Ryan Martinez, um, Eric Harris was elected earlier this month and has now taken office. So, Hey, a new newly elected person. Now's a great time to reach out. He's new to the building. He's figuring stuff out. He's got to learn where the bathrooms are, where the coffee is, you know, how, what his lapel pin looks like, where his office is. It's all new to him. This is a great chance for you to be new to him as well. Send him an email, send him a, a, a phone call, go up there, make an appointment say, Hey, you just got elected. I'm your constituent. I want to say hello. What are you hoping to do this session? What bills are you supporting? What are you opposing? What are your long-term plans, right? He's got to run for re-election uh, later this year. He only won by 250 votes. I would hope that he is very interested in being accountable to his constituents. He represents everybody in that district. Whether you voted for him or not, he represents you. And now is a great time to reach out. Eric Harris, HD39. There you go. The big news this week, I think, uh, one of the big news is like, this is all big news, right? But the big news at least the last couple of days since Wednesday, no, since Thursday, is that uh, it looks like the legislature and the governor are going to eliminate the state's portion of the sales tax on grocery items. The House passed this last year in 2023, right? And because of the way the legislature works, that's a two-year session, they passed it last year, which meant it was still floating around out there, eligible to be reheard, and the Senate passed it on uh, on Thursday morning. And uh, pro Tim Greg Treat really was excited about this, and he made it clear. He said, we're passing this, you know, to give some relief to Oklahomans who are struggling under uh, what is actually not now super high inflation. At the time they passed this last year, it was like 9%, but inflation's dropped by two-thirds. It's only down to like 3% now. And, uh, but nonetheless, they've passed this. So it goes to the governor who has signaled he's going to sign it. But pro tem treat said, this is it. This is all the Senate's going to do. We are not going to pass a reduction of the state income tax. And he said that, which I, for, I, I think a sound mathematical reason is that most Oklahoma families will see more benefit from this than they would from the income tax. And removing this is more of a progressive um, benefit to lower income Oklahomans, right? Who spend a higher proportion of their income. Like if uh, just in round numbers, if you make, you know, $2,000 a month and you spend $400 of that on groceries, that's 20%, right? Of your, uh, of your income is on groceries. And so saving some money on that is a much bigger deal than if you're a wealthy family and you also spend $400 a month on groceries, but you make 10,000 a month. It's like a smaller proportion, right? These are all made up numbers, but you get the idea. Um, the impact though, on not just the individual household, but on our state is an area of potential concern, right? And this is, this is where I think, uh, this is where like politics gets nuanced, right? The gray area that we don't talk enough about, certainly not in the news and probably not even in our homes, that we all recognize that it seems ridiculous that we tax groceries. Everyone's got to buy them. We need food to live. A lot of states don't tax groceries anymore. Oklahoma does, but we have some really messy aspects of our tax code in this state. And by eliminating just this state portion of the sales tax, it will save you and I money, right? The when it goes into effect in um, August, I think of this year, you'll start 
saving a few bucks, like every trip to the grocery store, which is good. Like you need the money, right? You can buy an extra carton of yogurt or whatever it is you buy, carton of milk. But cumulatively, it is going to result in the state having around, uh, I think, an estimated $418 million less of revenue each year, right? So that means that for next year, our state will have $418 million less to spend than they did this year, and the same every year. And that essentially means that they can't raise what they're, they can't increase what they're spending on things like public education or public transportation or, you know, whatever. And so just recognize there's a trade-off here. Like, so, you know, we might celebrate that this is good for taxpayers about groceries, but there's a cost on the other end that is non-zero, right? It's a cost of $400 million that we won't have to spend going forward. Could they do something about that? Yes, they could increase taxes somewhere else, but they won't, right? Because, well, raising taxes is unpopular, and also it would require a three-quarters majority in both chambers, which has only happened once since 1990, right? And that was in a very bad spot, two years of being in a very bad spot. So, so what we'll deal with is lower revenue for the foreseeable future. And it's important to note that there were two no votes on this. One was Democrat Mary Boren. The second one was Roger Thompson, who you might recall is the chairman of the Appropriations and Budget Committee, right? So like the main person in the chamber who's responsible for the budget. And he said, I believe the day will come when this vote will be remembered as the beginning of the descent of our fiscal soundness. Now, Thompson terms out this year, and so he maybe has the political ability to speak more freely, but he's someone who has always been pretty measured uh, in his speech and measured in his approach to management of the state's budget. And I think his opinion should carry some weight, right? Now, obviously, it was a vote of uh, 46 to 2, and so like it was going to pass with bipartisan support regardless. Uh, and as Speaker McCall said, this is the single largest tax cut in state history, um, which is important to note. Like sometimes doing things that are unprecedented um, should come with a bit of a caution sign, right? Just And so, you know, listeners, we'll find out, right? If we're still doing this podcast in three or four years when there's some kind of other unexpected economic downturn, as there always is, right? Economy's not always going up. Um, in fact, Gettner Drummond, the AG, in the Board of Equalization meeting just a couple of weeks ago, pointed out that, like, we can't always assume that revenue is going to go up. Like, there are dozens of examples in history where it goes down, and then what happens? And what we have a tendency to do in this state is to cut taxes for the sake of electoral benefit, even though most of these districts are, you know, deeply partisan and the the Republicans going to win a lot of these seats anyway. Uh, but we will still cut taxes and then figure out what to do when the bottom falls out later, right? And if you remember what happened in 2016 and 2017, when we had a $1.3 billion budget shortfall, and it required the legislature to muster the courage to come up with a three-quarters majority to pass a revenue increase, and even that was really lackluster. That barely got us back up. Um, I just don't want our chickens to come home to roost. So I'm not saying it's a bad policy. I'm just saying we got to be aware that we've just blown a big hole in the side of the state budget and we haven't found a way to fill it. And at some point we're going to have to fill it. Right. Right. Uh, here closer to home for some of us, if you live in Oklahoma County, you may be aware that our jail is a dumpster fire. It's a big, uh, a big messy, rusty bucket of death traps. Um, it's people are abused and neglected. People are lost. They've, a number of inmates have been lost for like more than a year because they just couldn't, they forgot them. They were on the paperwork. They lost sight of them. They were waiting in trial and never heard anything. It is a terrible facility. It's been broken since day one. They've had problems the whole time, like with the structure of the facility, the way it's run has been uh, definitely called into question. Anyway, 
a while back, we decided to vote uh, to approve a new jail, and now the county commissioners have selected a site on which to build it after much consternation. And you know, the the board of county commissioners right is three people, three county commissioners: Carrie Bloomert, uh, Miles Davidson, and um, Brian Mont, who we've had on the show here. I think Carrie's been on the show. Miles hasn't yet. Maybe someday. Anyway, uh, uh, county commissioner Davidson and Mon have repeatedly proposed several sites in northeastern Oklahoma City and for a bajillion uh, historical and uh, reasons, that's a bad idea. Thankfully, all of those got beat back, right? And they moved it around. And nobody, you know, nobody wants a jail in their backyard, especially the people of Dell City, as it turns out. So the, the site that's been selected is right on the border with Dell City, on the kind of southeastern part of the city. And uh, the Dell City City Council has approved, I think, a, a fund of like $150,000 for legal fees, proactively said, listen, we don't want you to build it right here by us, and we're going to fight you on it and take it to court. So we'll see what happens. Um, the The county doesn't own the land yet, right? They've just selected the site. The city council's still got to vote um, to allow to for that land to be rezoned, so they even can build the jail there. They've got a few backup sites, but all the while, right? Like at whatever point they decide on the side and then they start building it. We're a few years away from having a new jail. And in the meantime, the old jail, right? The rusty bucket of death traps is still operational, still having problems. And in fact, the last, uh, not the last surviving, the last of the founding members of the jail trust, Sue Ann Arnall just resigned this week, right? In protest over a lot of this stuff uh, and about how the jail is being run. And so we, you know, the jail trust was created as an oversight body to help run the jail. And it has been so mired in conflict and scandal, somewhat because of the structure of the jail and the management of it, um, that we've had a complete turnover of the jail trust membership. So I don't, I don't have it. There's not a, there's no silver lining to this, right? This is still a very difficult issue. Um, I will give my kudos to County Commissioner Carrie Bloomert, who has really fought hard to um, keep out jail potential sites in northeastern Oklahoma or northeastern Oklahoma City and trying to look for other alternatives. I think we all know, right? Like, ideally, the jail should be close to other resources for people who are being uh, being discharged or because oftentimes they just let them out. Like, they just, I, I have people I know who were, you know, spent the night in jail and then had to walk out the front door at like 12.01 a.m. And they just had to like, they didn't have a phone or they had to like just start walking down the street um, trying to get some help uh, without any resources. And that is certainly not an ideal way to run things. If the if the real goal here is to help people get back on their feet, or you know, like either you get convicted and perhaps you are, I don't know, sent to state prison or you're released for, you know, whatever reason. Ideally, we want some supports there, and the current situation is uh, is not providing that, and it looks like this new site might not either. We'll find out. But if this is something you're interested in, you should go to a Board of County Commissioners meeting if you can, right? You can go Google Oklahoma County Commissioners. You can find out when their meetings are. You may have to request off work. Maybe you can watch it online. The meetings are surprisingly interesting, and they're surprisingly boring in lots of ways as well. Um but you can view the agenda in advance. You can uh, be involved. And even if you can't attend the meeting, once again, you can reach out to your county commissioner. If you are listening to this and you don't live in Oklahoma County, guess what? You have county commissioners too. There's three in every county. They make good money. You should reach out to them and find out what they're up to. You probably also have a county jail, right? We talk a lot about Oklahoma County and Tulsa County because they're the biggest, but Grady County, Comanche County, Cleveland County, all the other 75 counties, like half county jails. Do you know anything about how they're being run? Good, bad, ugly? Maybe you should. This is worth finding out, right? How we treat the least among us, like, is a good indicator of how we feel about society and how much we care about our fellow neighbors. So maybe do a little research. I hate that that, I hate that, that phrase is like, become a joke now, right? Because everyone's like, I'm going to do my own research. 
And in too often, it means they go to some like hokey website that's full of misinformation. But there are reputable places. Like if you can go to your board of county commissioners meeting and get firsthand information, that's a great idea. Speaking of legal things, though, uh, Attorney General getting getting her Drummond. We've got music for him. Um, he uh, oh, I forgot that it's like a, it's like a Western. Uh, Attorney General getting her Drummond has once again dismissed the state's lawsuit against Class Wallet. This is this is significant because he's done it twice now, right? When he took office uh, in twenty twenty two. Uh, he, there was already a lawsuit filed by previous Attorney General John O'Connor on behalf of the state against Class Wallet. And this is about, you know, money spent in the pandemic by families who were given access to this website and they bought stuff that was not education related. And they did that because the website, the Class Wallet website, allowed them to because, from the information we have, they asked the state. Hey, do they get to buy anything or is it only certain things? And the state said, blanket approval. Let them apply. Let them use it for whatever it is. Like, we'll trust the individuals to make the right decision. I don't think they said that part. They just said blanket approval. And people bought non-educational stuff, right? Video game systems, refrigerators, whatever. They thought, hey, we got money to spend. We're going to spend it on stuff we need or want. And then later, we're like, oh, we weren't supposed to do that. My bad. And the state has been like, oh, well, Class Wallet, you shouldn't let them do it. And Class Wallet said... You told us we could. Like, we asked you about it. So, Governor Stitt got then AG O'Connor to file a lawsuit against Class Wallet saying, you should have stopped this. Once Drummond got in, he was like, no, it's not. It's not Class Wallet's fault. They asked. You told him, I'm dismissing this. Well, happened again. Stitt asked Drummond to file it again. Drummond said no. So, Stitt hired his own attorneys to, to file a lawsuit. But the AG has the authority to basically like take over any lawsuit in the state. So he did. He took it over and then shut it down. He was like, no, no, we're not doing this. This is not their fault. Now, there's probably some politics at play here, right? Possibly. A lot of folks are have rumors floating around about Drummond running for governor. And obviously he and Stitt are at odds on a number of issues. And maybe that's it. But also, there may be just a legal reason here. Like, I don't have all the facts of the case the way the AG does. He's looked at it and said, this is not a, not something we want to spend state resources trying to prove because we're not going to win and we might lose, right? It could go the other way. So he just dropped the case. So that's really interesting. We'll see what happens next, right? I don't know that the governor has another option. He could rehire somebody, but then the AG could just step in and take that over again and shut it down again. And then, then we're just playing this tit for tat game, which seems like not, not the way to run a state, but... What do I know? So we'll, we'll stay tuned. Um, also, up in Edmond, speaking of lawsuits, this week, and in and, and full disclosure, my kids go to Edmond schools. This is an issue that's important to me personally. Back in January, the State Board of Education sent a letter to Edmond Public Schools and told them they needed to remove two books from their public libraries. Within 14 days. You've got 14 days to do it. Remove these books because they contain, in the state State Department of Education's opinion, like pornographic and inappropriate material. And one of them is like the, the Kite Runner. Right? There's a movie about it. Uh, former President George W. Bush and his wife Laura like praised the book. But there's some difficult content in these books that's like probably not, a, not appropriate for a fifth grader to read, but I don't think it was in a fifth grader's library either. And... And it's not inappropriate in that way. It's just like not age appropriate for them in the same way that like they shouldn't watch, uh, you know, Marvel movies. You shouldn't watch Deadpool if you're in fifth grade. I don't know. Like these are general statements. <laughs> these are all moral statements on some level. But I think we can understand what is age appropriate and what is uh, fear mongering. This was clearly a, a fear mongering effort by the part the part of the uh, State Department of Education and Ryan Walters. Ooh, we've got music for him, too. That is actually quite appropriate for this topic. So, you know, a while back, Superintendent Walters formed this Library Media Advisory Committee, which is just newly announced and is secret. Like, we only know one member, and it's this libs of TikTok person. Um, 
And so since she got there, now they found these books in Edmund. And, you know, previously he took some approach at really clamping down on Tulsa Public Schools and really forced out the previous superintendent there, Deborah Gist. Well, Edmund, who also has a female superintendent, which I think is not insignificant, but the way that the State Department has framed this is like, you remove these books in two weeks or we're going to come for your accreditation, which is the same kind of bully tactic that they did in Tulsa. And I think the way that I'm viewing this Library Media Advisory Committee. This is just me speaking. This is not on behalf of any organization, but it seems like this is like a death panel for books, right? There are death panel for libraries where this body gets to make advisory recommendations to the state on what books should stay and what books should go, even though it's like a very cloak and dagger behind the scenes group. It could just be one person. We don't know. But so far, this is their first action is to recommend Edmund Ruther's books. And this flies in the face of state law and of district policy. And so the state, or no, excuse me, the Edmund Public School Board had an emergency meeting, met for hours. And from that meeting came out and said, we, we unanimously agree to ask a judge on this, right? We're not going to comply because we don't think this is legal. And in fact, um, A.G. Gittner Drummond who will play his music at the same time, right? <laughs> he said, I agree. This, uh, the state does not have the authority because, in his words, the legislature is responsible for legislating. And even these rules, right, these administrative rules that the State Department has have to go through the legislature. And when they sent these rules last year, there's a lot of questions about them, and the legislature said, we don't really agree but we're just not going to take a position on it. And that allowed it to go to the governor who had the final authority. So I think this was like the legislature's way of saying like, we're innocent of this book's blood, send it on to the governor and let him make the decision. Uh, and so now this is going to go before a court and we're going to have a state court make a determination about whether or not the state department of education has the authority to regulate what books are in local district libraries. This has enormous consequences. This is very important. Um, and I'm certain that all of our, you know, whatever 400 or 500 districts will be paying close attention because I know a lot of districts are worried that they're going to be next, right? Everyone's worried about being on Walter's shit list because if they lose their accreditation. It has all these like downstream consequences for the district, um, in terms of like federal money programs, they can qualify for lots of stuff. It's a bad deal. Uh, and so I think we'll be really paying close attention to what happens. All right. And our last bit to talk about. I meant to do little uh, trombones in between these things or little sections between each topic, and I didn't get to it. I was too busy fiddling with our, well, our two named individuals and our soundtracks for them. But the last bill that I want to mention is one that just got voted on on Thursday, I think, yeah, on the 22nd, it is House Bill 1107, and the author is Speaker Charles McCall. This was a shell bill up until Wednesday when new language got inserted into the bill, and floor leader John Eccles, I'll say friend of the show, at least previous guest, I don't know how he feels about me right now, that's okay, um, but he presented the bill in committee yesterday in the Rules Committee in the House, and this bill would fundamentally change some really key aspects of our ballot initiative process. For one, it would add a $1,000 filing fee or bond. So if you're going to file a ballot initiative, you have to pay a thousand bucks up front. And if you win, you get it back. It's refundable. So that's a huge barrier to people filing initiative petitions. And on some level, I get it though, right? The there is a cost that the state incurs when you file a ballot initiative. They've got to make copies. They've got to put it in newspapers. They've got to do some stuff. And, you know, there are some people who file a lot of initiative petitions that are never going to go anywhere. Like, they don't ever collect signatures. They don't do anything. They file them because it's free, and they can do it with, like, a piece of paper. Uh, there's an individual in Tulsa who's filed them from jail on a number of occasions. Of course, it doesn't go anywhere. Nothing really happens. But it makes the state do some busy work. And so maybe that $1,000 fee helps keep out some of the riffraff, right? 
Could the fee be $500 and have the same effect? Probably. Could be less, but here it is. Um, and also, like, a $1,000 fee in the grand scheme of the cost of a ballot initiative is, like, pretty low. Like, you're going to need way more than $1,000 if you're going to actually win, so maybe that's not the biggest deal. Um, however, there are two other pieces. One is that it expands the challenge period from 10 days to 90 days. And I think from my reading, this does this for each of the challenge periods, and there's two challenge periods in the process. And that means that you're looking at potentially, well, 180 days of just waiting around to see if someone files a challenge against your measure. And if that happens, right, like that's six months. We already have one of the longest, like, most difficult initiative petition processes in the country. There's only 26 states that have the initiative petition process available to them. And of those, we have one of the longest, most arduous processes, and it's already very, very difficult and very costly. So adding in, a, you know, an additional 160 days into this process is completely unnecessary. And I say that as someone who has run a ballot campaign, um, if there's going to be a challenge, it's almost always filed in the first 10 days. I have a good guess on who it's going to be filed by because there's certain groups and individuals who keep tabs on this stuff. Also, that's the whole point. The state is required to post this on the website and in the newspapers. And so if you want to file a challenge, you can. And if you miss the first time, there's another chance later on in the process to file a challenge. Almost every initiation that is viable gets challenged already. So I don't know what we're waiting for. This is just clearly a delay tactic. Secondly, this bill would also require every person who is collecting signatures to have a OSBI background check on file. Um, Leader Eccles uh, answered a question about this during debate yesterday, and he said, well, you know, the 10th court or 10th circuit court said we can't limit it to only registered voters collecting signatures. And so this is a way for us to make sure that these are like legitimate people, essentially. Um, and the problem here is one that is additionally costly and takes time, right? Takes more time on top of everything else. And it basically means that a campaign cannot use volunteers, right? Like the, if you're running a ballot campaign, many of you listeners have helped collect signatures for ballot campaigns, whether it's for Medicaid expansion or medical marijuana or redistricting. Well, we didn't get that far, but, um, you know, there's a lot of issues out there that you may have helped collect signatures for. And if, if it would be so much harder for you to say, I want to do that, that you have to go get a background check and go to the jail and fingerprints and all this stuff, right? Like that's a big hurdle for anybody to go through. And so it passing this law would, in some ways, almost assure that a campaign has to hire outside people, right? That have already had background checks and perhaps even folks from outside the state, which based on Leader Eccles' comments is like what he's trying to avoid. And I think this might unintentionally bring about the thing that he's trying to avoid, right? Even if a campaign is able to overcome this, it just requires campaigns to raise more money, which means more outside funders, right? Every bill like this that makes the process more harder makes it harder and harder for just you and I as Oklahomans to put our heads together to build a grassroots campaign, right? This almost ensures that it takes big money funders to make this happen, which is the exact opposite of what the framers of our constitution had in mind, right? They had in mind that Oklahomans as individuals, as people could say, we have a voice in our government. And that is exactly why this is the first right that is enumerated in our state constitution is the right of the people to petition their government. Um, And by the government layering on rule after rule after rule of regulation, over-regulation of this, they are forcing this right to be minimized for individuals and forcing it in the hands of outside funders um, and outside people. And it's not okay. And what I'm afraid is going to happen, right, is that you're going to, I think this is similar to our tax cut scenario where maybe not this year, but soon there will be an issue that, that you know, maybe one party primarily wants and it, they will have backed themselves into a corner, right? They will have painted themselves into a corner with overuse of regulations and rules and 
um, kind of per stickity requirements that they won't even be able to run a ballot initiative that they want to because they wrote rules that are too stringent. And again, like the ballot initiative process is not only sacred in our state, it is really effing hard. It's expensive, it's hard, it's not easy, and there's just no need for things like this. Now, if you have thoughts about this bill, good, bad, or ugly, again, uh, it just passed out of the Rules Committee, so it is eligible to be heard on the House floor. You can contact your state representative about it. You can contact Leader Eccles. I mean, all the bills have to go through him before they get put on the floor agenda. Presumably, he's going to put it on the agenda because he presented it in committee and because it's a leadership bill. You might also go ahead and give your state senator a call, right? Because sometimes the chambers don't get along. And there's a chance that this bill passes out of the House and goes to the Senate, and maybe they don't like it. But we'll see. But I think, again, like there are, there are reasons that elected officials are afraid of the ballot initiative process, right? And generally, that's because it means they don't have total control over what becomes law and what doesn't in our state. And they like, even though they pass like 99.9% of the laws, the opportunity for the people to do it themselves makes them nervous. And I don't know if they're afraid of, you know, an initial petition about abortion or about something with agriculture or who knows, right? Like all kinds of stuff, redistricting, all kinds of stuff out there that might threaten their power somehow or threaten their donors power somehow. But again, like everything cuts both ways, right? The Democrats were in power in the state for a hundred years. They made some bad decisions that now they wish they hadn't. The Republicans are in power now and undoubtedly they are going to make, or they have made some decisions that they're going to regret later too. And all I'm asking is for all of us to think long-term about, you know, Again, let's not cut off our nose to spite our face. All right, that's it. Um, thanks for sticking with it. If you stuck through the whole episode with just me rambling on by myself here in the democracy den, I thank you. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. But if you want to come do something in person this week, we have an opportunity. Wednesday, February 28th at 6 p.m., we will be in Norman at Equity Brewing. We are doing a essentially a West Wing watch party uh, with us and the Scholars Strategy Network, which is a group of mostly academics, journalists, civic leaders um, who are kind of have a resurgence in membership and excitement. Uh, we're going to watch an episode of the West Wing called Hartsfield's Landing. And then we're going to have a panel discussion about primary elections, caucuses, top two, top four, closed, open, all that stuff. Um, our panelists include Dr. Emily Stacy from Rose State, Dr. Andrea Benjamin from OU, and uh, Lynn Thompson from the Oklahoma Academy. I'll be moderating. It should be really fun. There's going to be snacks. There'll be drinks. It'll be a great time. Please come out. Um, go to our website so you can RSVP. In fact, I will just put the link in the show notes so you can uh, RSVP to that Eventbrite. It would be really great to see you there. If you can't make it, and if you can, please remember that decisions are made by those who show up and find a way to show up this week. Have a good week. <laughs>